0: My name is Jason Windsor. I'm one of the student pastors here at the Mount, and I am exceptionally honored to be here with you guys this morning uh, studying the Word of God. But as student pastor, I always got a plug, uh, we just got back from our annual middle school retreat. We got back uh, Wednesday afternoon, and I want to report to you that we brought everyone that went back. So, yes, because that's... That's step one of a successful camp, right? Like you, the number that leaves is also the number that returns. And like every camp, you know, the kids learn a lot, but we as adults uh, learn a lot as well. Uh, One thing that was reinforced to me is we have the greatest team of all. There was that song, man, that song always gets me. We have the greatest team of volunteers ever assembled on the face of the earth. These people take off work. They go sleep in cots. It was like 1 million degrees out there running the obstacle course. It felt like we were running it on the face of the sun, but there was neither a complaint nor a concern. They kept your kids safe. They taught them about who God says they are, and they are amazing people, and I want to give it up for them this point. In addition, I also learned I quite possibly have the greatest wife on the planet. Uh, we have five children. So when I leave to go do camps, uh, all the practices, all the bedtimes, all the bath times, all the, I mean, your kids might not do this, but my kids are on occasion disobedient. <laughs> Just on occasion. Like, I know that yours probably don't do that but you find it hard to believe. But every once in a while, one of my children makes a mistake. So our job, I would liken it with five children. We usually need about four people to do our job. We have two. So when one leaves, that leaves one person to do the job of four people. And she always does it amazingly. So I just wanna uh, give her honor and thank for all that she does. Uh, She also, you'll be happy to know, she packed all the first aid kits for our camp. And we used them, and if it was up to me, we would have been going to other, like, the camp going, hey, can I borrow a Band-Aid? Like, hey, you got any of that spray? So she's definitely better at keeping kids alive than I am, which I realize is probably a bad thing to tell you since I'm a student pastor. Um, and one thing, those are things that I already knew, but one thing that was kind of reinforced is, uh, "Whoo, I am not getting any younger. Uh, man, I used to be able to go out there and run those obstacles with those kids, but now I'm like, no, man, I gotta stay over here and guard this water right here (laughs) because water is the source of life and somebody's gotta guard that bad boy. So you guys go, and you know, every once in a while, the 13-year-old boys, the 17-year-old boys, they'll come up and be like, come on, let's challenge. And that's, you know, that's how they make their thing. And I I promise you, I can end the game in two minutes, but if I am unsuccessful in ending that game in two minutes, (sighs) I'm in trouble because I am better than all of them for two minutes, maybe two minutes and 30 seconds, but after that, the gray in this beard becomes apparent, and I am walking up the stairs to my cabin like this. (laughs) Woo, so, but it was a great time, and uh, i do it all over again. They were uh, absolutely fantastic, and I, I love them all. And I'm just reporting to you, if you have a middle or high school student and you're like, hey, I want to get them involved in student ministry, Windsor at MountEra.org. your student will be served by the greatest volunteer team that has ever existed in space and time. That is not an exaggeration. Um, so with that said, I want to wish you guys a happy 4th of July. It seems like God has given us some great weather to celebrate with. So I don't know what you're getting into this afternoon, but I'm sure it will be fantastic. But before we dig into the scripture God has for us, we have a custom up in our student ministries. We pray and we ask Him to make this time profitable. So let's do that today. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for being a good God, we thank you for sending your son. Uh, We thank you for loving us enough to, when we rebelled against you, draw us back towards you. We ask now, as we look in these scriptures, that you give us specifically what each individual needs to know you better, to know themselves better, and to take this wisdom into the mission field in which you've planted them, and they can be great ambassadors for the name of Christ. We ask this in your name. Amen. All right, we're going to be primarily coming out of two passages today. The first is in Ecclesiastes chapter 2. And the second is in Philippians chapter one. So that's where we're gonna be set up. But before we do, we're gonna actually start with the document that we are celebrating today. We're gonna start with the Declaration of Independence. Because in this declaration, there's a very famous quote that you learned about in elementary school and you learned about in middle school and high school, a quote that claims that our creator has endowed us with certain rights. And no one should ever be able to infringe on those rights. The three of the rights listed in one sentence are the right to life, the right to liberty, and the right to pursue happiness, right? These are three things that are in there, and we literally, as a nation, went to war over the right to pursue these three things. And we celebrate the fact that we declared war over these things. That's what we as a culture, we say it is important enough to send brave men and women to protect these rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And I would say in over 200 years, not much has changed. We are still as a culture very much focused on life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. I would say probably most on the pursuit of happiness. And I think I can prove that to you. If you buy anything today, look at the magazines on either side of your checkout in the grocery store. Five ways to make him happy. Five ways to make her happy. Five ways to have happy children. Watch any television, right? Watch any television. This will make you happier. It's lipstick. It doesn't matter. It will make you happier. You have a great car, but it doesn't matter because this car will give you a driving experience, right, which is a fancy way of saying, this will make you happier. We repackage it all kinds of ways. Your best life, right, buy a book about your best life, every song, this is what will make you happy, this is what you need, this is what you don't have. We as a culture are absolutely obsessed with pursuing happiness. And I won't speak for all of you. I'm only going to speak from my own experience. I don't think we're doing a very good job of finding it. And I submit to you this, that as a student pastor, two or three times a month, I get a phone call or an email from a parent that says, hey, can you help my student get to see a counselor? Can you help my student with what they're struggling with? Can you? And sometimes I even get adults that say, hey, I'm struggling with this. And this is an inordinate amount of emails that I receive. And when I call around to see who's available, guess who is available for counseling? No one. There is a six-month waiting list. But some of you have had such tragedy that you have been able to interrupt that six-month waiting list and get right in line. I would say, from my experience, that the time, energy, money, pages, resource, songs that we spend in pursuing happiness, we should probably be a heck of a lot happier as a culture, right? Because that doesn't make doesn't that make sense? Grass grows where you water it, right? And we're watering a lot of the pursuit of happiness. We as a culture should probably be A lot happier than we are right now with everything that we put into it, but we're not. And I would submit to you, there's a very good reason. And this is the whole sum of the lesson. I'm leading with my best shot. There's not gonna be any big reveal or twist at the end. I'm leading with my best shot. If you make happiness your primary goal, you will never be happy. Say it again in a different way. If you make your best life your goal, you will never have your best life. And that's not me sharing it, that's God sharing it. And our natural bend, our inclination, is to seek out comfort instead of suffering. It's to seek out happiness instead of sorrow, because that makes sense to us. You might be sitting there going, Jay, what are you talking about? I'm supposed to want misery for my children? Right, what's the, like, I should want happiness for my children, right? Like." You want me to, to want suffering and unhappiness and misery? Uh, shouldn't I want happiness for myself? I say, yeah, I want it. But don't pursue it as your primary objective. Because if you do, you will never be truly happy. And thankfully, I can prove it biblically. Because a lot of times, this stuff doesn't make sense to us, right? And, but, but I promise that biblical truth very often will not make sense to you on its first glance. Because it doesn't come from us comes from somebody a lot smarter than us. And it's good that it comes from smarter than us because we don't really need to be in charge of our own lives, guys. Like, you know that, right? Like You think back, some of my middle school students in the room, some of my high school students in the room, some of my parents in the room, really anybody that's ever lived that's in the room, think back to when you were 13. Exactly. I don't need to expound at all. I heard you chuckle. We have no business being in charge of our own happiness because we would struggle to even define it. God says crazy things like, whoever's gonna be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven will be the greatest servant here on earth. And in our mind, we think of greatness as kings. Like when they speak, they move. And when presidents speak, they move. And when influencers and leaders speak, people move all over the place, and that's power. But God says, no, that's not power. And we go, yeah, it is, and God says, no, power is using what little you have to serve those who need it. And then we go, oh yeah, that makes a lot more sense because now you're, I get it God, but a lot of times it takes him to explain it to us because he is a lot smarter than us. So when we say, when he says things like, if you make happiness your primary objective, you'll never be happy. We go, that doesn't make any sense, but thankfully he's given us scripture to unpack that. And we're going to look at that in the lives of two men the first of which is Solomon. Now, here's what you need to know about Solomon before we dig into Ecclesiastes. Solomon is quite possibly the wealthiest person who ever lived, and if he's not, he's definitely in the top 10. This is not just me throwing out facts. If you care to research it, I almost built the charts and put the things up there and converted talents to gold and gave you the worth of a sheep, but that was really boring. And I'm used to speaking to middle and high school students, and I know the second I put a chart up, they all fall asleep. So I decided we're not putting charts up. If you want to research that, you're more than welcome to research that. But I promise you, Solomon is one of the wealthiest people. And I'm not talking like top 15%. I'm talking like top 5 that have ever existed. He had money that we couldn't even fathom. If you totaled up the five richest people today, you got about half of what Solomon has, right? So he's crazy wealthy. He was also very, very wise. And he got his wisdom directly from God, as is the only source of true wisdom. But it recorded in 1 Kings chapter three, he's asleep and God comes to him in a dream and says, look Solomon, I will give you whatever you ask for. Whatever you ask for, you can have. And Solomon makes a very wise choice. He says, you know what? You've given me a great responsibility. My father David was a really good king. And you gave him a son to sit on the throne, which in those days is huge, right? Family, royal lineages is massive. And he's like, you blessed my, my father David by putting me on the throne and I'm a little bit nervous, so what I want is a discerning heart so that I can govern your people well, because there's a ton of people, and this is a big job, and I'm feeling really insecure, and I don't think I can do it very well, so give me discernment so that I can lead your people well. And God says, that's a great request, Solomon. He says, since you haven't asked for anything selfish— since you didn't ask for great wealth, since you didn't ask for long life, since you didn't ask for your enemies to all be wiped off the face of the earth, I'm gonna give you all of those things. Because you ask for wisdom, you get it all. So when we read this, and Ecclesiastes is gonna kinda of read like Solomon's diary, we have to remember, we are looking at the writings of one of the smartest men that ever lived and one of the wealthiest men that ever lived. So with that, let's take a look at how he spent his life. Ecclesiastes chapter two, verse one says, I said to myself, I told you it's going to be like reading his diary, right? Like I said to myself, come now, I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. But that also proved to be meaningless. He says, look, we're going to go have the most fun possible. This is it. I'm the smartest man alive. I'm going to spend my time figuring out what is the best Thing that humanity can possibly do What is the way to maximize Our happiness on the face of this earth He continues I tried cheering myself with wine And embracing folly My mind still guiding me with wisdom He says I threw lavish parties I had mega feasts But I wasn't out of my mind I wasn't just haphazard My mind and my wisdom was still there I was pursuing this pleasure Strategically because I want to report back to to everyone, what is the best way to spend your life? So I'm not just throwing these haphazardly, I am purposely having the best wine, the best food, the best people, the best time, so that we can maximize pleasure and we can say, here we go, this is how you need to spend your life. Because I wanted to see what was good for people to do under the heavens during the few days of their lives. I undertook great projects, I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of trees in them. I made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. He says, I didn't just throw wild, crazy parties. I built amazing things. Because we like, that makes people happy, right? I did something. It was a sense of satisfaction that wasn't there before, but it's there now, and I had a hand in that. I'm happy. He gave back to the community. He had a way to water trees, which in an agricultural community is life, right? He says, not only did I throw crazy parties and have a lot of fun, I built these amazing things that were a testament to my wealth and greatness, and I built things that serve the community. All things that we would say, yeah, that should make you pretty happy, right? Fun, great accomplishment, serving the community. Sounds like a recipe for happiness to me. I'm on board, where do I sign up? He continues. I also bought male and female slaves and had other slaves who were born in my house. Now, I must admit, I feel a little guilty there because I also would like to have a lot of people in my house doing all the things I don't want to do, <laughs> right? Solomon never had to wash a dish. He never had to ask the question, what's for dinner? He never had to sweep up a glass when he dropped it. He never had to sweep up a glass when one of his children dropped it. Like, it, I, I'm just being honest. Like if you list all the things he's listed so far and you say, Jay, which one is gonna make you happy? I'm like, oh yeah, put a bunch of hired workers in my house to clean it and cook the dinners and bow the yard and drive the practices. Sounds like happiness to me. But he continues. I also owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasure of kings and provinces. He said, I had more goats than everybody. I had more sheep than everybody. Not only that, I have more treasure than anybody. Not only that, people drove from other countries to hear my wisdom and then gave me stuff. Like it wasn't just my treasure. People held me in such high esteem and thought I was such a big deal that they traveled for weeks and said, hey, here's some of my treasure too. Sounds pretty good to me. He says, I acquired male and female singers and a harem as well, the delights of a man's heart. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. And in all this, my wisdom stayed with me. I got entertainers so I would never be bored. If I got bored, I just said, hey you, sing. Hey you, dance. Hey you, tell me a joke. I was never bored. I was never lonely because I had a harem. If you want to explain that to your children, go right ahead. I will go no farther than that. But you understand what I'm saying. The man was never lonely. He had what we would consider it all. And he finishes that section by saying, and my wisdom never left me. This wasn't haphazard. And if you look at that list, it's pretty stinking exhaustive, isn't it? All the things, the esteem of other kingdoms, the company of beautiful people, never being bored, never doing chores, never having to worry about money, right? All the things listed there. Oh man, I gotta be honest and I might step on some toes, but you gotta remember it's not me. I'm just reading the scripture. Man, that sounds a lot like the American dream. It sounds a lot like what people literally leave their lands to come here to achieve. Right? Wealth, greatness, influence. Whatever his heart desired, he could do. And that's what he says in the next section. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. He because of his great wisdom, and because of his great wealth, was not restricted the way we are. If he could think it, he could do it. If he desired it, he could get it. He is the perfect person to test this theory that if you make happiness your primary goal, you will never achieve it, because he literally had none of the restrictions that you and I have. If he willed it to be done short of God himself intervening or it breaking the laws of time and space and physics, it would be done. And this is what he said about his work. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and all that I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless, a chasing after the wind for nothing was gained under the sun. He applied his wisdom and his time and his energy and his resources to achieving happiness, making it his primary goal, and his exact words, nothing was gained. So all that time, all that energy, all that resources, you could fit in the palm of my hand, what it amounted to, absolutely nothing. He called it a chasing of the wind. And I think that's the best way to describe happiness, right? Because it seems to come in spurts. Right? Doesn't it? It seems to come in in these spurts when all of our expectations or what we think of a given situation magically fall into place, we're happy. But then when one of those expectations is removed or not met or something doesn't quite work out, we're unhappy. I would say that is a terrible thing to tether your happiness to. That's exactly like chasing the wind because you're not in control of where you're born or to whom you're born or where, what anybody does to you or does for you. So if your happiness is tethered to that, you are in no control of whether you'll be happy or not. But what you can do, what you are in control of, is the primary objective of your life. You are in control of that, not in control of what happens to you, But you are in control of the direction that your life is headed. You are in control of what you pursue with your time, your energy, and your money. That you have control of. And we're gonna look at another man's life and we're gonna see what God tells us we should spend our time pursuing. We're gonna flip over to Philippians chapter one and we're gonna look at a man named Paul. Now a couple things you need to know about Paul. He did not start out a friend of Jesus. He started out a man named Saul that was bent on persecuting the people of the way. Jesus said he's the way, the truth, and the life. He was bent on persecuting the people of Jesus. He saw it as blasphemous that Jesus would have claimed to be the Messiah. He saw it as his God-given duty to eradicate this blasphemy off the face of the earth. But then he met Jesus. And he had his life changed and he became one of the greatest evangelists that the world has ever seen. And he went all over Asia and Europe, planting little churches. One of the churches that he planted was at Philippi and that's this letter. This letter is written to that and where we find Paul writing this letter is in prison and I would submit wrongly in prison because what he had done is not something you and I would be considered prison worthy. But again that's a different story for another day. He's in prison, suffice it to say. And I think we can all agree that if we were trying to be happy, and if we said, all right, what are some places that we can be happy? Prison would not make the list, right? So if somebody is happy in prison, we wanna find out why. Well, he says it in verse 12. He says before he launches into what we're gonna cover, he says, whether I'm in prison or free, it doesn't matter because God's purpose is going to be accomplished. And that, as we're going to uncover, is the root of his happiness. He's sitting in prison, wrongly put there, writing a letter to a church. I'm sorry. I'm writing, hey, somebody come get me. Somebody come get me. I ministered to all y'all. I've preached to all y'all. I've taken your kids on camp. Somebody come get me. That's not what he says. He says, yet I rejoice. What? Yet I rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. Says it don't matter where I am. You know why it don't matter where I am? Because whether I'm on the beach or whether I'm on the battlefield, I have a great, big, huge, God-given purpose so I win no matter what. This guy is gonna get shipwrecked, still winning. He's gonna be bitten by a poisonous state, still winning. He will ultimately die for the cause of Christ, still winning, why? Because it does not matter where he is, it does not matter what happened to him. He said, you know what? Happiness and comfort will not be my primary objective. God has given me a purpose. His purpose will be my primary objective, and so I rejoice in prison because other people are preaching. He goes on to say some of them are preaching because they're happy I'm in prison. They're like, yeah, now I got more states. He said it doesn't matter. Haters going to hate. They're still preaching the gospel. He said it doesn't matter. Ooh, That would tick me off. You're happy I'm in prison? No, he's good with it. Why is he good with it? We're gonna take the crux, this is it. This is what you take home with you right here. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I'm to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what will I choose? I do not know. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I'm here, that's awesome, because I have the privilege of partnering with God in this great big purpose that he's given me. I have the privilege of leading people, talking to people, and making an eternal impact. You understand what I mean by that, right? An impact that lasts after life. An impact that when he sees them in heaven, they're going to say, you know what? Yes, we did it. You didn't just give me food, which is good. You made a lasting, eternal impact on my life by teaching me about who Jesus was and what he did for me. And he don't need to be comfortable to do that. You can do that anywhere. You can, no matter what job you have, you can do that. No matter what, how long the line is at the checkout aisle, you can do that. No matter where you are, no matter what you're doing, all those circumstantial stuff that we think makes us happy, our job, our school, our spouse, our boyfriend, our girlfriend, regardless of what God or the enemy brings in and out of your life, the thing that doesn't change is your God-given purpose and partnership with him in eternity. And if that is the objective of your life, you might not always be comfortable, but you can always be happy because you have a meaningful life. That was the problem with what Solomon pursued, right? They were amazing things, but it had no meaning. And he still ached for that the same way that you and I do. And you realize this is why the pursuit of happiness will never end in happiness, because if it did, we would not chase God, right? If we could be happy by pursuing our own happiness, that would be enough. Because if you can pursue happiness or God, guess which one you and I are going after. Because here's the thing about pursuing God. Verse 29, it's not gonna come up there. I just want you to soak in this. I just want you to hear me me read this. It's not coming up up there. He says, for it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, because that's where we stop most time, guys. Believe, right, believe. This is what Paul says. Not only believe in him, but also to suffer for him. Man, we don't preach that bad boy a whole lot. We believe in him, that's good. When we are called not only to believe, also called to suffer, if happiness is our main objective, we will not suffer. Because suffering generally doesn't make us happy. We're in a military community. I don't think I need to teach you guys about this. Many places you guys have slept did not make you happy, right? Many of the things you had to endure in training, many of the things that you had to endure getting where you are did not make you happy. But the mission took priority over your personal comfort. You're actually more qualified to give the message today than I am. You understand this acutely, that if happiness was your goal, you probably would have tapped out of that mission. But you didn't, because you understand that a meaningful life is more valuable than happiness. See, I think we as Christians as a whole but we specifically as pastors do a very bad job with our sales pitch because we'll say things which are true like come to know Jesus and you'll never be alone again. Very true. Very true. He promises, I will never leave you. I will never leave you high and dry and stranded, but you will still feel lonely because you're still here on this earth and so we preach this thing, you'll never be alone, but then I feel lonely and I get confused. And we do things like when you come to us with financial problems and say things like, Pastor, I don't know how I'm going to pay my rent. And we're like, all right, well, let's pray together or let's, let's figure something out. And then God doesn't quote unquote come through. It's like, well, where, where was he? Or whatever we're praying for when it doesn't come through, when God doesn't behave the way we think he ought to, We get confused because the sales pitch that often comes out of our mouths is never explicitly said but understated that God exists to solve our problems, which is just another way of saying God exists to make us happy. God did not exist to make us happy. God says, follow me. You understand what he's saying when he says that, right? Jesus' call to his disciples was, come, follow me. You realize who we're supposed to follow? A person that left perfect heaven to come down here, which we've been talking about for the last 25 minutes is not perfect. He ultimately walked, for the last three years of his life was homeless and murdered. And then he said things like, I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. He said, in this life, you will have trouble. His brother James writes, Be thankful for trials. He promised us that following him would be uncomfortable. He promised it, but he also promised it it would be worth it. And what I mean by worth it, it's the only way to have an eternally meaningful life. Because we as Christians, we're going to have marriage problems. We're going to have children problems. We're gonna have school problems. We're gonna have financial problems. We're gonna have car problems. We're going to have all the problems that this world offers. But one problem that we will not have is we will not have the problem of a meaningless life. Our suffering, Paul writes, is but for a moment and will seem insignificant, these afflictions, he says and the glory of what's to come. Because you realize what we get, right? When he says it's a tough choice, he's saying, look, I get to be here for God's great big purpose and I get to be a part of his plan unfolding and I get to see God's eternal workings here on this temporary earth, or I die and I'm happy forever with Jesus Christ. I can't stop winning. We Christians have that. Now those that can hear the sound of my voice that are still undecided on who Jesus is, it is perfectly rational for you to aim at your own happiness. I hope I've proven that you will never discover it, but it's perfectly rational for you to aim that way. But for those of us that believe that Jesus is who he says he is, it makes no sense to exchange our purpose, which will grant us joy and delight Chasing happiness, which we will never find. Makes no sense whatsoever. So the question is, what do I do with this information? I gave you scripture so you can fact check me. Go home, get alone, fact check this. And when the Holy Spirit proves to you that if happiness is your primary goal, then you will never be happy. And when he proves to you that you have a great big God-given purpose, you surrender. That's your homework. I can tell you be in the Bible seven days a week. But that's, do that anyway. But your homework is to go home and look at your life and see what it's aimed at. Because that's all you got control over, man, is what your life is aimed at achieving. That's it. That's what you can do. So if you truly want to be happy, that is only found in one way. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for being a good God. Uh, we thank you for giving us your word that we can truly have joy in you and not whatever this cheap substitute is that the world offers. The world gives us just enough to keep us deluded and keep us lied to and keep us on the fence. It gives us just enough to distract us from our great God. given purpose. I ask that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you eradicate that and those who believe you are who you say you are. And I believe that the Holy Spirit calls those who have yet to know you to an intimate relationship that they leave here today, crying out, what must I do to be saved? And that the Christians that you have placed in their lives because you love them more than we do, lead them to acknowledge that they have done wrong, that because of that wrong, they stand correctly judged by you, and because of your death on the cross, they can be joined to you. We ask that we be on fire, that no interaction be meaningless, that we understand that whatever mission field you've put us in, we have a great big God-given purpose there, and that we have the privilege of watching you unfold it. We ask to be good ambassadors through the power of the Holy Spirit, and we ask this in the power of your Son. Amen.